The point being, though, that there will be people who will reject Jesus, and before he comes back, people are living lives without any care for the Lord, and there are going to be people who say they are followers of Jesus, but aren't really followers of Jesus. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. On our last broadcast, David took us to the second chapter of the Gospel of John, describing how many people believed in Jesus' name, but that He wouldn't entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in their hearts. Today, David picks up where he left off in a message called, People Make Lousy Gods. Dear friends, if you unabashedly and totally love Jesus, and you are committed to Him and the truth of His Word, here is some bad news for you. Expect there to be people, even some who call themselves Christians, to persecute you, to stand against you, to pursue you in negativism and say you aren't worthy to live. You don't have the right view of how to love people. And Jesus said just expect that message to come to you if you truly decide to follow me. He said, because it happened to the prophets, Israel was living in all kinds of godlessness, pursuing false idols, living in gross sexual sin, not loving their neighbor well. And the prophets, that is from Isaiah through Malachi, along with Elijah and Elisha and other prophets in the Bible, continually went to the people and warned them of the judgment of God. They had another group of prophets who just wanted to tell them good news. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah says there are a group of prophets who just say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. It was just those who wanted to say, good news, God loves you, don't worry about it. We've got those kind of prophets today who will not look at the gross sin that's around them and just continually tell their people, oh, God loves you, don't worry about it. But the prophets who warned the people of God's judgment were constantly persecuted. And some were stoned to death. Legend has it that Isaiah was sawn in half. These prophets who preached the truth of God had people come against them and persecute them. Jesus said, as it happened to the prophets, it will happen to you as well if you stand unashamedly for me. He said in another place in John 15 that the pupil is not greater than the teacher. If it happened to me, so it will happen to you. Jesus constantly warned that there would be people who would stand against you if you stood for him, and sometimes they would even be supposed followers of Jesus. Let me turn with you to Luke, the 17th chapter, and let me read to you some verses starting with verse 22. These are powerful verses and address some of the question you may have about the second coming of Jesus. Are we living in the end times? I'm getting that question asked a lot right now, principally because of the pandemic and and its continued uh, persistence in our midst, uh, the economic flows that are going on around us. People are worried about the mark of the beast and the 666, which is an economic sign that will be placed upon people. Well, let me give you one interesting insight today without having to go into much of end times theology. We can do that at another time. But listen to these words in Luke, the 17th chapter, starting with verse 22. And Jesus said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So he's saying there are days in the future when my disciples are going to really want the Son of Man to come back. 
Some of you feel that way right now. You really would love for Jesus to come back right now and solve all the problems that are in the world and in your life. But you will not see it, Jesus said. And they will say to you, look, there, or look, here. Jesus is saying there are going to be some people who say, oh, look there, look here. Jesus is coming back right now. And Jesus said, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In the day that he decides to return, it will be like lightning. No one can predict when a lightning flash is going to occur. In fact, in another place in the Bible, in Thessalonians, Paul says that Jesus will come back like a thief in the knife. I mean, how many thieves call a house and say, hey, I'm going to come rob you at 2 o'clock in the morning? Of course not. Thieves don't tell when they're going to come, nor does Jesus. No one knows the day of the hour except the Father. Jesus says, just be ready every single day, living close to me, bearing fruit for me, and loving your neighbor. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things. Jesus must suffer many things. Rejection from people, the cross especially. He suffered many things, and here's the key. And be rejected by this generation. Jesus knew he was going to be rejected by this generation. Amazingly, on Palm Sunday when he entered Jerusalem, people cried out, Hosanna, save us, Messiah. They lined the street with palm branches. They were calling him a king. And within several days from Sunday to Friday, that same mob that was crying out, Hosanna, save us, king, they were crying out, crucify him. Within Five days, their whole attitude toward Jesus changed, and they rejected him because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. He was a Messiah that was going to change that wicked, selfish, Jeremiah 17, 9 heart into a heart that wanted the King of kings and Lord of lords to rule, not a military Messiah. And when they saw that that's not who he was, they then wanted him crucified. So the point being that this generation in which Jesus lived, those who saw his miracles, those whom he healed, those who maybe even believed in his name were really faux followers and changed and rejected him. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So the first illustration Jesus uses about his second coming is it's going to be a day like the days of Noah. People were just marrying and raising kids and just going on with life. The ark was being built. There was the judgment of God being pronounced upon the people, and they didn't even see it. Even when Noah entered the ark and the flood came, God's judgment came and destroyed them all. Again, the judgment of God is all over the Bible. We need to understand that in our sin, we are hearted rebels against a holy God and his judgment must come upon us unless we repent, change our lives, live for him, bear fruit for him, and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and has forgiven our sins. Second illustration, Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. 
Lot and his family escaped, except for his wife. She looked back longingly at her godlessness, and she turned into a pillar of salt. But God's judgment came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but the people were just going on living their lives. They didn't expect that judgment to happen. It came suddenly without warning. So Jesus warns here, his second coming will be in a time when we don't understand, like lightning, suddenly, like a thief in the night. We need to be ready every single day. Verse 31, on that day, on the day of Jesus' coming, the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away, and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other one left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other one left. And they will say, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And Jesus there is alluding to the corpse the godlessness that will remain, but the people of God have been taken out of this earth, and he says they'll be in the sky like where vultures hover around dead bodies, and Jesus will oversee his second coming well. The point being, though, that there will be people who will reject Jesus, and before he comes back, people are living lives without any care for the Lord, and there are going to be people who say they are followers of Jesus but aren't really followers of Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we've all got to acknowledge that in the Bible, people who stood firmly and solidly for the Lord had people who rejected them, turned on them, and betrayed him. I mean, go through the list of solid biblical characters, and you'll see one after the other where this has happened. Just a brief overview. Moses had Korah, who led a rebellion against him. He also had, at different occasions, his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, lead a rebellion against him. There were people who rejected him. You have King David, who talks about, in Psalm 55, this one who betrayed him, who walked closely with him in the temple. Who was it? Some think it was Ahithophel, Bathsheba's uncle, who was a close advisor to David. Others think it could have been Jonathan, his close personal friend who turned against him to support his dad. Uh, we don't know, but it was somebody awful who betrayed him. You have Joseph, who had all of his brothers throw him into a pit. And in Genesis 42, 22, uh, Reuben tells his brothers as they're getting ready to meet jo Joseph that this day of reckoning is coming and God surely saw when we shed innocent blood and Joseph was begging for us in the pit to lift him out and we refused to hear him. Joseph had all of his brothers turn against him and then go into the New Testament and Paul says at one point, everybody in Asia Minor has deserted me. Probably an hyperbole, an exaggeration, but nevertheless, Paul felt like everybody in Asia Minor had deserted him. He did list a couple of people, Alexander the coppersmith and Demas, who deserted him. And I've always wondered if that was Paul's way of a little bit of revenge, saying, you know, these guys betrayed me, and I'm going to let everybody for the rest of human history read about their names in the Bible. Nevertheless, he went through it as well. And of course, the obvious one is Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus had Judas who turned against him and even had Peter, his close companion, who at one point did turn against him but then ultimately came back. The point being, if you try to put your trust in people, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, these powerful words, For I am now seeking, if I'm now seeking, the approval of man and not God, or am I trying to please man, question mark? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
Here's what Paul's saying. If you're a people pleaser, if you try to find your identity in people's loving you and having good opinions of you, and you also want to follow Jesus, you're in big trouble. He said, here's the way never to have anybody speak ill of you. Don't be a servant of Christ. Don't believe in the gospel of Jesus because the truth is the gospel divides, the gospel convicts, the gospel invites people to come against you, reject you, criticize you, and try to eliminate you from their lives. This is partially what Paul was trying to get at in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, as he said these words, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, true believers in Jesus, whose lives are deeply rooted in him, who are being saved, it is the very power of God. So there are a group of people out there, when they hear the gospel, they think it's folly. They think it's silly. Now, now why is that? Well, several reasons, I think. First of all, the cross of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, that I'm a sinner and I'm going to hell, but Jesus intervened on my behalf. He took my punishment upon himself, and he was raised from the dead to give me the gift of eternal life. To believe that, folks, first of all, for some people, they think it's absolutely aesthetically unpleasing. Don't talk to me about that old bloody cross. It's awful. It's hideous. It hurts my heart. I don't want to hear about it. But dear friends, it took that hideous cross to take our sins away. From the Father's perspective, it took that awful, unpleasing, cross to bear our sins for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have the gift of eternal life. I mean, God could have easily just come and killed a lamb and then said that's our sins are forgiven, but our sins are so hideous and so awful, it takes the awfulness of the cross for that to happen. And that is aesthetically unpleasing to certain people, and it considers the cross folly. Also, some people think it's folly because they don't believe they're sinners. I mean, how many times have I heard through the years people say to me, well, I'm basically a good guy. Well, according to whose standard? And here's the question, how good is good enough? If God is perfect and holy, where do you lie on that standard of holiness? Well, I may be at 75%. Well, that means you're 25% short. And if the standard's 100%, what are you going to do when you face God one day and try to explain away your unrighteousness before a perfectly righteous God? Well, the truth is none of us are at 75%. The older I get, I know I'm like at 10%. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not anyone. That's what the Bible says about who we are. And to say that the cross confronts that sin, that I'm not a good person, I'm basically an awful, godless, rebellious sinner, well, that's an offense. And by the way, if you know Jesus, you are not a godless, reprobate sinner. Don't tell me that anymore. Have people come to me, I'm just a poor old awful sinner. No, you're not. If you believe in Jesus, you're a child of God. You've been birthed into the kingdom of God. You're an adopted son or daughter in the family of God. You're a prince or a princess. You have royal blood pulsating through your vein. Here's what you need to say. I am an adopted son or daughter in the family of God. I'm a prince or a princess, and I messed up here. And I go back to the cross to drink from grace. You don't use the cross to continue to sin, but when you do sin, because we still live in these fallen bodies in a fallen world with a very fallen enemy who tempts us, you go back to the cross and drink of that grace, renew your identity, but you never say, I'm just a poor, old, miserable sinner. So the cross is folly aesthetically, it's folly to people's pride, and it's folly intellectually. All the intellectual elites in our culture look at this cross and they go, that's just silly superstition. One said it's cosmic overkill for a father to kill his son. Not if our sin's that great. 
It's not cosmic overkill. It's the truth. And you know, for those of us who know it's true and believe it's true, it's not folly, but it is a fragrance of eternal life that lives in us. And we know that God in us is working out his good pleasure to create us in the image of Jesus himself. So if you want to follow Jesus and you really want to be serious about loving him with all your heart and you place yourself under biblical authority, you can expect the world to come against you. Expect it. It will happen. As I've watched our president now in in two weeks do over 38 executive decisions, uh, executive fiat, And where's the legislative branch of our government? It's all out of whack and all out of balance. But I've seen him make decisions that help me realize that as I continue to take biblical stands, I'm going to have pushback from people who reject me, don't like me, but I'm not playing to them. I'm playing to Jesus. So when I see, for example, uh, continued executive decisions that disregard life at conception, people say, follow the science about ecology and climate change. I go, good for you. Follow the science, but follow the science with abortion and life. And the Bible clearly says that God's the author of life and it begins at conception. It's not your body. You don't have the right to just control your body if there's another body inside of you. And my wife would be the one as a female to say that more strongly even than I do. She cries sometimes when she thinks about abortion. So it's not a male or female issue, folks. It's a God issue. And you've got to take a stand one way or the other. listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in a discussion about the fact that humility is a choice. We'll be right back. I'm Mark McManus with Moments of Hope Church's Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. With me in the studio today is Tony Marciano, Executive Director of the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Tony, tell us about the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Mark, at the Charlotte Rescue Mission, everything we do is about transformation. With a focus on individuals struggling with addiction, we uniquely work from the inside out to address the root cause. And we accomplish that by providing professional, Christian, residential recovery services free of charge. Now let me back up for just a moment and explain all that to you. When I say the word transformation, I get those marching orders from John 6, a very interesting chapter of the Bible, where on day one, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That night, the disciples float across the lake. Jesus follows them by walking across the lake, and the next day, the crowd gets in boats and follows them. But on day two, Jesus chooses not to feed them. He begins to preach at them, and they all leave. I think in that one chapter, it's the heart of God for the poor, where God says on day one, I love you so much, I accept you just as you are. But day two, God is saying, I love you too much to leave you there. And that's the hard work of transformation that we focus on every day at Charlotte Rescue Mission. I mentioned we uniquely work from the inside out to address the root cause. And that root cause is shame. Guilt is when I make a mistake, but shame says I am a mistake. And if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. And if God knew me, God wouldn't like me. And then I wrapped it up by saying we address this by providing professional, free, Christian residential recovery services. I like to use the verses out of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. And verse 19 says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Mark, I believe firmly that when someone realizes that God's love is four-dimensional, not three-dimensional, not conditional, 
but unconditional. When they have that aha moment that God loves them, all the shame in their soul goes away because they know they are fully accepted by God. Not for what they've done, but simply because God loves them. And that's what we do every day at Charlotte Rescue Mission. Love to have you get involved. Please go to our webpage, charlotterescuemission.org, for ways that you can impact the people we serve. Thanks for listening. I'm Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for joining us today. It's wonderful being with you as well, Jen. David, in your daily e-devotions, you recently wrote about how humility is a choice. What do you mean by that? Well, it's something I think every follower of Jesus needs to understand. It is taught continually throughout the Scripture. I hope all listening today will make this choice as well. Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. I think it's pretty clear here that pride is not from God. We need to fight pride with every ounce of our being. In fact, prideful people often become that way because they've rejected God's wisdom over a long period of time. They've chosen pride, maybe even for months or years, maybe even a lifetime. And when we're used to walking through life with a prideful posture, we need something fairly severe to break us of that prideful walk, to correct our own thinking, to remind us of how truly little we actually know or control. Mm -hmm. And God's in the business of breaking prideful people. We see it time and time again throughout Scripture, throughout history prideful people are often brought to their knees, maybe not immediately, but over time, it's almost a certainty. Well, Scripture also teaches us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift us up, James 4.10. Daily, God gives us opportunities, Jen, to choose humility or pride, to choose to lift up ourselves or our Creator. Humility is a choice. It's something everybody needs to understand. And here's what I know is true. I'd much rather choose to humble myself than have God do it to me. I know that when I choose humility, God honors that. But if I don't choose humility and God then has to choose humility for me, that means he has to break me of my pride, bring me to my knees, and allow me to see him as the glorious ruler of the universe, not me. I've heard it said one time that uh, being humble is thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. And I think that's also a good reminder of how to remain humble. It is. And it always begins in the mind. Mm. It begins with our thought life. We are what we think. So every day we have choices to either exalt ourselves or exalt God, Mm. to choose pride or to choose humility. And I would exhort all of our listeners right now from my own personal experience, especially if you don't choose to be humble, God will choose to humble you. And sometimes those humblings from God are very painful, Hmm. and I'd much rather choose that humility for myself than have God do it for me. Yeah, that's good. Here's the bottom line, Jen. Choose humility. 
And when you do so, you're imitating Jesus himself who chose in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 language, not to think equality with God was something to be grasped, but chose to humble himself in the form of a servant, come to this earth and die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Why? Because of love. Jesus chose humility. Let's choose humility ourselves. Wow, so powerful. Thank you so much, David. And listeners, if you'd like to get our daily Davidisms, these moments of hope, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe for them there, and they will be sent to your inbox every single morning from my heart to yours, a gift to start your day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message on the Gospel of John is from our online worship service. And you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking that you reach out and connect with a lost friend.